0: But as a sort of this collection of, you know, encouragements. But understand what's actually happening. Uh, This should help. So let me put this up on the screen for you. All right, just kind of an Old Testament timeline. Uh, We obviously start with creation in Genesis right? And as we go through creation, we see the foundations there for understanding who God is and understanding who we are as being created in his image, that he is a holy and perfect God and, and as he created Adam and Eve to live in presence with him perfectly, right, something went wrong, right? So we see sin taking place in Genesis there and it sets up then the scene for the rest of the story. Right? We've got this perfect holy God and a creation that's fallen and broken because of sin. And then God makes a promise to them about what he's going to do about it. He's going to reverse the curse. Right? He's going to bring it all back. He's going to save his people from their sin. And so we see the beginnings then of that plan in the middle of, Whoops, let me go back want this little red guy in the middle of the book of Genesis we see the call of Abraham where God through Abraham says okay it's through you and through your line that I'm going to start over I'm going to create a people a nation for myself and it's going to be the nation of Israel he tells him that he's going to have all these these children that are that are more numerous than the stars above right and he's going to make a nation and then we see the beginning of that happen uh, as we get to uh, Exodus and Moses shows up on the scene of course And Moses is the one whom God is going to lead his people uh, from their current state of captivity. At the end of Genesis, they find themselves in Egypt, Abraham's seed. They're captives, they're slaves. Moses is going to set them free and take them to a land of their own and a place where God can dwell with them, right? So Moses shows up on the scene and we see then throughout the the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that the whole movement from outside of Egypt into this promised land, this land of Canaan. Joshua shows up on the scene. They get to go into the land. Uh, We see the conquests books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, 1 Samuel. We see the period of the Judges. They're they're beginning to form this nation. They're beginning to establish themselves in the land. And then what happens is, then God, God establishes them under a king. And that king is David, right? Let me move to the next slide. And the monarchy period begins and we see the reign of David and this is the apex of Israelite life. This is, the, this is the king after God's own heart. It's not a perfect existence. David is not a perfect king but he's the model as the, the leader that God has chosen for his people, a man after his own heart and, and, and the, the, the nation begins to really flourish and then David passes away and his son Solomon comes in and stuff starts to go bad. Right? Solomon is following after the Lord for a time, and then he's not. And by the end of Solomon's life, he's given himself over to marrying all kinds of women, following all kinds of gods uh, from the, the, these foreign women that he's married. And, and the, the nation itself begins to unravel. And God says to them, look, you know, because of Solomon, your unfaithfulness to me, if you guys continue on this path, I'm going to take this kingdom away going to take the land away. And the rest of the kings and the chronicles, those books in the Bible, tell the stories then of the subsequent kings and just how they're mostly unfaithful. There's just a couple of them who, who every now and again would bring about some biblical reforms uh, following after God. But for the most part, they're just kind of this downward spiral until something very significant happens. In 722 BC, we see that the... Northern half of the country is conquered by the Assyrians. I should go back and say that right before that, we see the kingdom divides. So because of their unfaithfulness, there's sort of this little civil unrest the, and, and the, the nation of Israel splits into two. And so we see the northern part is called Israel, the southern part is called Judah. And this is where Jerusalem is. All right. The northern part has no good kings. I mean, this is going bad quickly for them. The southern part, there's a couple of good kings. There's, they last a little bit longer, but ultimately they both fall. 722, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. And then around 605 to 586 BC, we see finally the southern kingdom fall to the Babylonians. All right? And they're exiled, the people, into Babylon for a period of 70 years. And at the end of that 70-year period, God opens the door, and this is where we're going to start with Ezra, for them to come back. Okay? So Ezra begins here at the end of the exile period and the beginning now of God starting over again with his people, rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed, and sort of seeing the... The second incarnation, if you will, of an exodus into the promised land for the start over. Does that make sense? Okay, so there you go. There's our setup here for where Ezra and Nehemiah fit. Let me say this about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and again, we'll cover Nehemiah as we get further into the fall. Uh, the, the, the main theme here is that coming back into Jerusalem all right, so God's people are beginning to come back into the nation itself. But the, the focus here is on the city of Jerusalem. And as we're in the book of Ezra, we're going to see the focus being on the rebuilding of the temple. The Babylonians had completely destroyed the temple. Uh, and as we get to Nehemiah, we're going to see the, sort of the rebuilding of the wall around the city. All right? And here's the main idea that I want you to get uh, before I get to the, the main idea that's on the screen. The rebuilding is not so much just about rebuilding buildings and walls. Okay, What's happening here in the book is we're seeing a rebuilding of the place, the temple, and the city of Jerusalem in which God dwells with his people. That's been gone for 70 years. There's been no presence of the Lord with his people and a place where they could gather together and worship him. That, the temple being the place where God resided with them is, is gone. And so the rebuilding is, is a bringing back to uh, a presence. God's people in the presence of their maker. That's what this is about. And here's the, the main idea for the sermon today. No matter what seems to be going on. Okay, no matter what seems to be going on, or I could say what's not going on around us. God is perfectly orchestrating his sovereign plan to preserve his promises and his people, even in the most mysterious and impossible ways. No matter what's going on or not going on, seemingly, around you, you can have this confidence. God is at work. And he's always at work to preserve his promises and his people, Even in mysterious and impossible ways. And we're going to see that here. That's one of the great encouragements I think that we're going to find as we go through this this first chapter of Ezra is that sometimes it seems like there's no way God's going to do anything about this. There's no way he could. This situation is so bad, we're stuck. And what God shows us is that he's the king of creation. He's the sovereign one. He's the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills and the one who directs the hearts of nations. And there's nothing, nothing that can stand in the way of him doing what, exactly what he promises and purposes to do. That's the main idea. So let's look down at Ezra chapter 1 and begin to read about the return. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. And placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400 and these did Shespazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from babylonia to jerusalem let's talk a little bit about what's being said here and the first point i want you to get this, is this is that god stirs god stirs and it's significant to note how ezra understands the historical realities of cyrus's Actions here. Now, let me give you a little bit more brief detail about, about how this is played out. So, in 605 and through 586, when Jerusalem initially was being sacked by the Babylonians, the king of Babylon at that time was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And if you've read the book of Daniel, you, you, you're, that name is familiar. That's when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were exiled out of Israel into Babylon. Right? It was under ba- uh, Nebuchadnezzar's rule that all of this was, was taking place when, when everything was destroyed. Uh, now, we've, we've actually had a few different rulers. You could read the book of Daniel to see how some of this has played out. But a few different rulers have, have reigned over this empire. And the empire has been conquered uh, a couple of times at this point. And so now we have the Persians who are over everything. They've conquered Nebuchadnezzar. They've conquered Babylon. It's the Persians and the Medes who are now, who are sitting in the seat of power. And so the exiles are still there, but they're now under a different ruler. And this, this ruler's name is Cyrus the Great. Okay? So Ezra is understanding the historical realities of what Cyrus did in making this decree that you can go back, Israelites, to your homeland. And, he, and he's doing that in a, in a way that, uh, that is different uh, then the common historians would look at this. Common historians would say, well, look, yeah, Cyrus really existed. Uh, he was the leader then of the Persian Empire in the 6th century. We've got records of his reign. We've got incredible detail about the kind of, uh, of a leader, of a king he was. We've got archaeological evidence that, that proves that he not only did this for the Israelites, but he did it for lots of different people who had been conquered. He let them go back to their homelands, right? Right? So for the historians, they're seeing this as a real event that occurred and said, yeah, he did this, but he did that for everybody. That's just kind of the way Cyrus was. And that's true. But Ezra, as he writes this, is seeing it through a different lens. He's seeing this through the lens of the Word of God. We're told a little bit later in the book of Ezra, in chapter 7, that Ezra was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses and one who set his heart on the law of the Lord. So another way of saying that is, Ezra's a guy who knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. And so he could could see what was going on around him, historically taking place, these big events, and he could interpret them through the lens of the scriptures that he had known from his youth and appraise the things that were going on spiritually. Not ignoring the fact that they were happening in real time historically, but, but appraising them spiritually and to be able to say something about what, God's word has, has actually talked about what's going on, predicted what's going on, and we need to take heed of what, what's God doing through Cyrus's benevolence here. So did you catch what he said? He said, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. For Ezra, Cyrus's whole activity here is being caused by God who's influencing him in an irresistible way so that, Ezra says, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah would be fulfilled. Well, what's he talking about? What's that all about? The prophet Jeremiah was prophesying at the beginning of this exile, 70 years earlier, about what was happening then. And he said this He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back. To this place. So, in the very beginning of the exile, God told Jeremiah to tell his people, This is my doing. You're going to go away, but in 70 years, you're going to come back. And so, it's a remarkable thing. What's an awesome detail about this is that that this is an incredibly accurate prophecy. Because again, the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem was occurring back in 605 BC through 586. It began in 605. And the return that's happening here with Cyrus's decree was in 539 BC, which is a period of 66 years. Approximately rounded up, 70 years. So Ezra's going, man, God told us this. His word has promised this. And even more amazing than that is that approximately 150 years earlier, Isaiah prophesied about this event. And that's what Jeff actually read to you before I walked up here this morning. And here's the cool thing. I'm going to put it back on the screen. 150 years before this occurred in Ezra 1, Isaiah's prophecy mentions Cyrus by name. I am the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. So Isaiah is seeing this destruction. And listen to this. The Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Right? That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> right? And so Ezra's going, we, this is exactly what God's word has been telling us for a couple of centuries. So there's one simple application here for Ezra. God's word will be fulfilled. God's word will be fulfilled, and, and we're seeing it in front of our eyes. God is, Keeps his promises. And so when as Ezra sees this unfolding, his his communication to the people of God is simply this: nothing happens outside of God's sovereign reign and rule. Nothing. I mean, this, this difficult situation that we've been in for a lifetime, for 70 years, for, for two, three, maybe even close to four generations, this has all been predicted by God. And he said, not only was it going to have a beginning, but it was going to have an end and he was going to bring it back. And he was going to do this through a guy named Cyrus, who was going to come 150 years later. I mean, God is in control. It doesn't matter to Ezra what other motivations Cyrus may have had. And clearly, Cyrus had other motivations for doing this. If we we consider Cyrus's life and the way that he ruled, some people have called Cyrus the father of human rights. Because he was one of the first ones who would come along and, and rather than conquering people and making them assimilate into Babylonian or Persian culture and religious rule, he was willing to say, you know what? Worship your own gods. That's fine. Go back. Rebuild your temple. Go to your lands. He was, he was kind of like into religious freedom. Right? Why was he into that? Well, it's pretty strategic on his part. As a guy who's trying to continue to conquer the world, it's a lot easier to conquer the world when you've got happy subjects than when you've got upset ones, right? And we think that he had his eye on Egypt. He surely did to conquer Egypt. And so who's right next door to Egypt? Israel. Israel. And if the Egyptian people can sort of look across the river and see a bunch of happy people under Cyrus's rule, it makes sense that they might say, hey, that's not so bad, right? So there's probably lots of reasons and motives for why Cyrus may have done what he did that were, that were not at all really focused on trying to be obedient to the God of the Jews, of Yahweh. We have evidence that, that he never was a worshiper of Yahweh. He worshipped a God called Marduk, Right? But for Ezra, like, it doesn't matter. That, it has no bearing on this. What Cyrus's motives are, we can recognize that God's bigger than Cyrus and God's doing something regardless of what Cyrus thinks he's up to. There's a mystery at work here, right? There's a mystery to the play between God's sovereignty and human activity and the scriptures don't mind that tension. There's no evidence here that that, that what's going on is that Cyrus is being sort of like like Stepford wife I will do the bidding of Yahweh. Right? It's not working like that. And yet it is. In the sense that God is accomplishing his purposes through this man regardless of his own motives. The point is again God's will is always accomplished. Human sin or selfish motives aside And that's an important reminder for the people of God in the midst of a difficult political reality. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's a good reminder for us today, right? And here's the thing. Ezra's talking about how God stirs up Cyrus, but it wasn't just Cyrus's heart that was stirred up. He stirs up his own people's hearts as well. Look at verse 5 again. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So again, God is not just orchestrating his plan and purpose through Cyrus' actions, but he's stirring up his own people to want to go back, to rebuild. Now, this idea of stirring up, again, I said it's not like a possession, you know, demonic possession we think of, like a total takeover or robotic uh, but 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 what does it mean? I mean, God is certainly doing something in the hearts of Cyrus and the people, and it's interesting if you if you read uh, John Calvin or if you read Jonathan Edwards, they both talk about this idea of the of the stirring of God, and and they and they talk about it in similar ways. They say what God's doing is He's increasing our affections for Him. I don't. He wasn't clearly doing that with Cyrus in terms of Cyrus never. Being a follower of Yahweh. But, but for the people of God, that's, I think that's the indication here. Of when God stirs his people to act according to his will, he's, he's stirring up their affections for him. Right? It, we, we, we talk about, because of Calvin's teaching, we talk about the concept of irresistible grace. It's not irresistible automation. But it's this, it's this understanding of that when God moves in his people and he, he begins to indicate to them uh, he's for them and he's accomplishing something for them, that he's initiating loving, merciful contact with them and they understand that, right? It's a stirring of affection to say, God, you're better than anything. I will go wherever you go. And this is what God is accomplishing So he stirs up. That's the first thing we see here. The second thing here is we see that he resources. Look at verses 4 and 6 again. Verse 4, we see that that Cyrus says, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods. So basically Cyrus is saying, look, uh, you Israelites who are going back, wherever it is that you're from, wherever it is that you're scattered around the Persian Empire at this point, when you go back, let your neighbors give you money and goods to go back with you so that you're not going back empty-handed. So in other words, if, if the king is saying to make an edict to the entire kingdom, you know, say, basically saying, look, if your neighbor is one of these Hebrews who's going back, you better give them your stuff. You're going to obey that. <laughs> the consequences of not obeying were not good. So Cyrus is indicating that this is, is going to happen here. And then we see in verse 6, and all who were about them aided them, so they, they did this with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So they're giving what's offered because they had to. They're also giving because they wanted to. Seems like God was stirring affections of everybody. Right? By the decree of Cyrus, the Jews were exiles were funded with everything that they would need to return and to rebuild. And not only that, but here's something even more interesting that they were they were resourced with. If you look at verses 7 and 8 again, we see the details then that Cyrus brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. So when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, he took all of those temple uh, furnishings, all of, the, all of the objects of worship that were made out of gold and silver, right? He took all of those things and Cyrus is saying, you know what, bring those out. They've been in storage for 70 years. They've been used a few times in in blasphemous ways, read Daniel chapter 5. Right? But bring them out and give them back. Let them take that stuff back. If they're going to rebuild their temple, let's let them rebuild it the right way. So almost every single item of worship from Solomon's temple that was taken was given back. And again, was this was in fulfillment of another of Jeremiah's prophecies when the temple destruction occurred. In Jeremiah 27, 21 and 22, he prophesied this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back. And I will restore them to this place. So God not only said, I'm going to bring back my people. He said, I'm going to bring back the object of worship for my temple. And all these things are being fulfilled. So here's the point. Everything necessary for the continuation of worship has been preserved and provided for the return and the rebuilding and then the third thing, in terms of observations of the text, is this: is that God names and numbers. All right, so he's he's he not only has preserved, and resourced, and stirred, but he names and numbers the people. And I'm not going to read through all of it, but if you look at chapter two, you'll see just kind of the, if you look at sort of the paragraph headings. These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king had carried off. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perash, and you get all these different names and all these different numbers. You get all these different families that are listed here. But, but a couple things of interest here. You'll see that in verse 36, the priests are named. In verse 40, the Levites are named. In verse 43, the, the temple servants are named. All right, if you can follow a little bit long, further down and see in verse 55 that the sons of Solomon's servants, the king's servants, are, are named. And, and we get this, this picture of all of the, not only all the families that are being brought back, but all of the positions that were, again, necessary for the proper worship of God the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, all of them are being specifically named as those in which were brought back. These are the people God stirred to come back. And these are the people that Cyrus allowed to come back on this first return. There's an an interesting array of people here. And again, it's it's, it's to say this, everything necessary for the continuation of the worship of God and the people of God is preserved and provided for the return and the rebuild. So I'm going to put back up on the screen our main idea. Pretty amazing when you consider the circumstances that these folks have been in for all this time and to be able to say, look, no matter what seems to be going on, or for much of those 70 years, probably what's not going on, right? God is perfectly orchestrating his sovereign plan to preserve his promises and his people even in the most mysterious and impossible ways. It's crazy, how these things were just sort of turned on a dime. Except when we know God said, no, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I can do it whenever I want. All right, so what does this mean for us? What's the application for us? Well, I can can think of three important things. The first one is this. That message that God preserves his people is not just relevant for the Israelites, for the Jewish folks in the 5th and 6th century B.C. It's relevant for you and me today. And here's what I want to just kind of say about that. God has named and numbered us too. That's what chapter 2 reveals to me about God's relationship with his people. Every single one of them, he's, he's like, I know your name. I've got your your number. I've got you written in my book. I have not forgotten you. This isn't just about the heads of the families, but it's about the numbering of every single one of them. God has all of his people named and numbered too. And here's here's what I can take as an encouragement from that. Just like for them, he will bring every one of us home. He will bring every one of us home. Now, I'm going I'm to read something into the text that, that may or may not be there, okay? Uh, but I think it's interesting, nonetheless, and I think it's biblical, even if, I'm, even if my detail isn't perfectly inspired here, all right? The length of time that the exiles were in captivity and prophesied to be in captivity was 70 years. Now, what's interesting about 70 is that the number 70 is, is a common number used in the Scripture to talk about the length of a life, just like it is today. I mean, we, we're living a little bit longer because of modern medicine, but, but 70 is kind of an average lifespan, right? And so, so what's, what's, what's God saying to his people here as they're going into captivity? He's saying, look, you're going to go off, and it's going to be perhaps a lifetime, Right? You're going to be gone for a while. You're going to go through trial for a while. You're going to be in captivity for a while, maybe even for a lifetime, but at the end of it, there is a promise, I'm going to bring you home. And I've been clinging to that this week as just sort of like a a, a clear promise that like, yeah, no matter who we are or where we are or, or, or what circumstances we find ourselves in, if you're named and numbered by the God who made you, Your name is written in the book of life that his son died to redeem. You can know this, that God has your date set for bringing you home and it can't be thwarted. It might be a whole lifetime, but he will bring you home. And here's the other encouragement for me. He won't lose anyone whose name is written in that book and maybe some of them don't know it yet. Maybe some of you this morning aren't yet aware or confident that your name is written in that book or maybe you're you're praying for and and pleading with God over a loved one, a son, a daughter, a spouse, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, and you're saying, God, would that you... Bring them into the fold. Would that you open their eyes to see their need for you and, and write their name in, in your book and bring them home too. And, and the thing is that if God has purposed for that to happen, it will. It will. Because he's got everybody's name written in his book whom he's called to come home And here's the other encouragement for me when I think about God preserving his people it's that kingdoms and oppressors will come and go. They will come and go, but the church endures. Right? Just in this 70 year period of time, there were four different rulers over the Jewish people. Started with Nebuchadnezzar and then his son. And I could name them all, but it's not you'd forget their names. They're weird names too, right? But through a series of events, like guys left, guys were killed, God killed one of them, right? Uh, empires changed hands, kingdoms come and go, and 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 you know after this, you had the rise of the Greeks, came and went. The rise of the Romans, came and went. Soviet Empire came and went. America, if God delays, Jesus tarries, going to come and go, right? But the church, the people of God have remained. Never conquered, maybe captive, never conquered, maybe subdued, never destroyed. Because God will build his church and preserves his people and he promises that they'll come home to the end. The church endures. And I think that's indicated here even by the preservation of these bowls. True worship will endure. God will protect and preserve his people and the true worship of his people no matter what. He preserves his people. Secondly, God preserves his plan. Now, I'm going I'm to just scratch the surface of this because we're going to come back to it. This is a theme that we'll see throughout Ezra, all right? But a very interesting one. Moses led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt into the promised land, right? They plundered the Egyptians, on their way out, they took their gold, their silver, their stuff, God resourced them with everything that they needed and promised them a new land. And they had that until, again, till their disobedience, God stripped that away. They were exiled again. But what are we seeing happen? We're seeing a new exodus. It's it's the same thing playing out over again. We're told that, that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order to accomplish his purpose of getting his people out of captivity the first time. This time we're seeing the opposite of that, but God still did it. This time he softened the heart, he stirred the heart of Cyrus, but he sends his people back into the promised land, plundering the place that they had come out of, resourcing them with all that they needed so that they could be again in a place where God's presence would dwell with them in true worship. It's a new exodus. It's a, it's a new movement of the people of God back into the land of Canaan. And so we see a new exodus happening here. It's a theme we'll continue to look at. It's also a point forward to the true exodus. When Jesus sets his captives free and, again, plunders Jeremiah 29 is a very well-known uh, verse you, you may have uh, appropriated it to yourself. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I don't mind if you claim that promise for yourself, but that, just know the context of it. The context was, was this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil to give you a future and a hope. That promise was spoken to them about this new exodus and the message of Ezra is really clear. This is a book about God fulfilling his promises. And then the last application point is just to to consider again that God transcends possibility. And this is what I mean by mysterious and impossible things. right? His providence is mysterious. Sometimes it's impossible, but it's totally unstoppable. He transcends possibility. And and it's just simply to, to remind us that it's still true in the 21st century, just as it was true in the 5th and 6th century B.C. God is at work behind everything. Behind everything. It's a crazy set of circumstances that that led to Cyrus being the one who rules and who did what he did. You You can look up the history books on that. It's a crazy set of circumstances. How all that transpired to bring us to this point where this man in charge would say, Go home. It's an impossible set of circumstances, and yet God accomplished that. It was impossible for them to be released from captivity. 70 years earlier. But God accomplished it. It was impossible for them to go home and, and have the money and the resources needed to rebuild. Everything was destroyed. And yet God provided for it. God works in ways that, that make no human sense sometimes. It's, it's totally mysterious. They, they transcend possibility. right? But, as we're reminded in Proverbs, the heart of Kings is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He'll accomplish whatever he wants. And he's doing that today for us. He's doing that today for us. He is providentially at work to fulfill still his plans and his purposes. And no detail is left unattended to. What are we told about God's attention to detail? He knows the number of every hair on your head, right? Do you think God doesn't care about the little things? He cares about the little things. And he's also working for the big things. God is working in every political election. God is working in every policy. God is working through every conflict Of nations? Man, if you turn on the news lately, it's all about politics and policies and Korea and conflict and all this. And you say, what's, what's going on with all this? This is scary stuff. Wasn't there something Jesus said about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and like, oh my goodness, that's the newspaper this morning, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's been that way before. It'll be that way again. Here's the thing. God is at work. He's at work in every hurricane. He's at work in every pain and loss that you experience. He's at work in every trial that you endure. He's at work in every success of yours in your career or in academia. He's at work in your failures. Every infertility and miscarriage, He's at work. He's at work in your marriage. He's at work through your divorce. He's at work in your singleness. And when you think it's impossible, listen, when you think it's impossible for you to be anything but an exiled sojourner, it's all I see, I just Impossibility after impossibility. I am an exiled sojourner. God's word stands here this morning as a witness to this reality. God does the impossible. He does the impossible and every promise he's ever made will surely come to pass. What's the the famous verse, right? When you're being reminded by a friend of yours that God is in control Right, he's got this. What's the famous verse that they quote to you? Romans 8.28, right? Maybe some of you are sick of that verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a true statement. Let me explain it a little bit. It doesn't mean that everything's gonna turn up roses in your life. 70 years. Could be 70 years, right? Here's what it does mean everything has a purpose. For the people of God, every promise that God has made is being accomplished through difficulties, through trials, through circumstances that are beyond your control, through your joys, through your pain, through your sorrow, through your tears, through your laughter. God knows your hairs. He knows your details. He's at work and he will fulfill his promise. If you are his, you're going home. And that's the message of Ezra. Ezra. That's the message of Ezra. And home is the place where God's presence dwells with you. Where true worship can occur. And it points us forward, of course, to the day when Jesus came to build his temple in his people. God's presence is with you. So he's already given you the ticket. You're going home. Father, thank you for your word, and we just pray that as we go through this book, Lord, you'll strengthen us in our understanding of your goodness and your sovereignty, and and Lord, that we'll be able to, like Ezra, praise the things around us spiritually. Not to deny that that there's all kinds of, of, of reasons that things happen, but to know with confidence that you're above all of it, And that you're for us. And if we forget for a minute that we can always look to the cross of Christ and say that Jesus stands as the ultimate witness, that you fulfill your promises. Our sins are forgiven. Our identity is set. Our adoption is secured. It's been signed. It's been sealed. It's been delivered. Your people go home. And we are home in Christ. Encourage us with that. And thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and minds to understand. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.